drop. You are listening to the Story Forward podcast brought to you by the fine folks who gave you Story Fort Presents, Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. This is Christian Wynn across the table. Hello. Uh, and this week, Chris, we are uh, going to try something a little bit different here. You know, uh, so far our, our, our shtick has been to do our, our little intro interview an author or a bookseller or someone along those lines and then do a correspondent piece. Um, we're going to keep the same three-act structure here, but we're going to change up the interview a little bit and we're going to change the nature of the story that we talk about. This week for Independence Day, we know that that's a holiday that begets a lot of stories and they're personal stories. And we happen to have a personal story about that holiday ourselves. You may be aware that Chris and I have known each other for over 30 years. Yes. And when we were putting together this podcast, one story kept coming up over and over again. And we're going to bring in one, maybe more other guys who were there and talk about that story. And in doing so, we're going to talk about oral tradition and oral histories and how accurate they are. Yeah, because what you remember is definitely not what I remember. Exactly. Not one-to-one. That's something that we sort of stumbled upon when we started telling the story to each other, that we had experienced it differently. And it is a legendary, it was a weekend in San Juan Island, on San Juan Island, um, maybe sort of slightly in San Juan Island too. And just, yeah, from 19, as you say, 1989, which is- as, with, as, as happens often with a group of average, semi-average guys like ourselves, as you age, these stories start to acquire a legendary sort of sheen to them. It may look to everyone on the outside world as just 12 guys blowing off steam, but in our minds, it's become something bigger. So we wanna tell you that story and bring in some other people who were there to, to tell you their side of that story. Um, after that, our correspondent this week, it's going to be Kevin Smokler, who is the author of Brat Pack Nation and the co-director of a documentary about records called The Vinyl Nation that just came out during the pandemic. And maybe sometime in the future, we can have Kevin on if we're talking about music stories. I think we shall. What it was like to pour yeah. your heart into a documentary only to have it be released in the height of the pandemic. Uh, Kevin's going to talk about... Um, a game he plays on July 4th that involves counting flags. Yeah, and it goes way back in his family's history. So mm-hmm. it's a, yeah, it's a great correspondent piece for sure. And yeah, I don't know, Larry, for you, you had a couple interesting sort of anecdotal 4th of July, Independence Day sort of uh, episodes Just, you want to tell me about <laughs> before we got on the air here. But so how do you remember the 4th of July? Like what are those stories that you, you know, go back it, to? And you're right, the 4th of July is a big time of stories. It's one of those, those big holidays that uh, you know, can either be a great experience or a big disappointment. And I'm sure uh, we've both had a little bit of both. When you ask me about 4th fourth, of July, which I think is the correct way to say it, mm-hmm. um, I usually think of bonfires we had on my block when I was a little kid. Or, and I said before, or great stories that happened in my 20s with girls I no longer know. <laughs> what about you? How long did you know them after that 4th of July? Oh, 
uh, average time, three months. <laughs> Those fourth of July okay. were great peaks. Uh, and yeah. I said it wrong that time, fourths of July. What about you? What 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 sort of fourth of July memories do you come up with? Oh. I know there's, yeah, I live in Boise, Idaho now. So just to start with some of those, when I first moved here, I live in a sort of tree lined in the city of trees um, neighborhood. And it's always hot, hot, hot on the 4th of July. And um, it was the third to the 4th of July. Just a few years ago, we saw John Doe, legendary artist and uh, frontman of X back in the day, play a solo show and, my girlfriend at the time and her friend were in time and they, it was memorable, we'll say. I mean, it was all kind of weird and smoke filled and the house across the street was uh, kind of talking to us. So we thought in a ghost-like way, I remember that. But when I was a kid also um, lived in the Bay area and we had like this horseshoe block. <laughs> My friend Rusty's dad or his stepdad um, would always go to San Francisco and buy us bricks of firecrackers and said we would on the run up to in the run up to July 4th yeah go ahead are you talking about that that you know you can still buy illegal fireworks in Chinatown in San Francisco you just got to know where to look he knew where to look this is back in the 70s probably early 80s maybe but he would get like a brick which I think was 80 packs Mm. and we would bootleg (laughs) we would sell them at school we'd make it we I don't think we even got charged for them but we would sell them at school um and make some money what a little degenerate you were. i didn't i wasn't super degenerate in many ways but we just thought that was a good scheme um and anyway we'd blow up all all varieties of fruit in neighbors garages we would like like we made dioramas of you know sort of army men doing things in sand and then we'd blow them up and i do remember that very very specifically but i also do remember some seattle stories where we first met watching a building burn from the top of a warehouse that was only about three warehouses down where a couple of our good old friends lived um, on the 4th of July. Yeah. I was on the top of that warehouse that first July 4th, but I believe the following July 4th, I was on top of or in front of your apartment uh, the year after this. Oh, that's true. Favorite July 4th. On Westlake, right? Correct. Yes. Um, July 4th, it's very fertile and there's a lot of stories that come from it. But what we're going to find out now as we welcome our guest uh, is whether or not people's stories match up. Yes. And I will we'll just say this, like we're going to talk to Eric Olson first. Mm-hmm. We're, Eric. We'll talk to Eric first. And it's, and it's a little up in the air. We, we may be able to grab a couple other guys and we may not. So, uh, but even if we just get one, I'm sure... Uh, we'll come to some sort of conclusion about what this story is really about. To each of us, I know. And that shifting notion of just oral history, like you said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many of the stories we think we know, if we could just go back in that time machine, we probably don't really know them, but then we maybe we know them better now because we've had a chance to process them, make them our own. And as a writer... I go back all the time to like stories I think I know from back then and kind of morph them into what I think I know now. <laughs> so or even even use you mean even use writing as a way to make sense of those stories and fill in the blanks or yes. or, or sometimes improve yourself. Sometimes you're not the hero of the story, whereas you may have been the antagonist rather than the protagonist. But let's let's go on to that. Uh, 
let's start that that process and let's get Eric in here and let's see what we come up with. Let's do that. All right. Yeah, what are we gonna do? We're gonna move the story forward. So here we go. We don't do that yet. We do that at the end. No, we do it now too. So <laughs> because right. now we have our story moving the next. All right, forward. we're gonna move this one forward. Okay, so we have with us Eric Olson, who was present at the time that we're about to discuss. And you know, we're gonna Eric. Uh, thank you for coming and, and welcome. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna treat you like a famous person, and um, which I, you know, in some circles you may be. But so we're going to talk about what for us was a very memorable weekend. But in setting this all up, uh, Chris and I were talking about that time and we decided it was, at least for us, a very memorable time. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how we were sort of outsiders getting into this very, what I thought was a very close-knit group. It looked like a very close-knit group of guys who had known each other their whole lives. And I'm curious, when you think back on that time, and we started talking about that off camera or off mic, um, do you see it that way? Yeah, very much so. Um, but a fascinating time, sort of if I look at it from like a, a social experiment perspective, and I think back just to all the dynamics and the relationships, it's like, wow, that was weird. That relationship was weird. But there was just a common thread of what I remember is just laughter, just uh -huh. constant laughter and giving each other a hard time, but doing so in a brotherly way. So everybody knew that, that they were cared about and cared for, but there was just a lot of shit that was talked. And, uh, but but it, it was special in that way for me, it was a brotherhood and I don't have any siblings and so I didn't have that other than through my friends uh, and in particular that group. So I would say, yeah, for sure it was special. Should we go back to the start for a second? Yeah, like, let's go ahead. How, how we got there, it's sort of like, you know, going to, to Altamont or like going to like Woodstock or something like that. Because yeah. it was a little bit, I, I do feel like for myself and for Larry in our early 20s, having just kind of like, met this group of guys including you eric like just that who had known each other for a long time and also it was like fun times late 80s seattle just turning 21 and going out and like uh, you know sort of all the stuff we the, the plans were laid for this weekend like and we're all going to go up there it's and by the way it was it was 12 guys we figure about young 20s dudes at this property and I, I, I transported Sean Smith um, and Dave Custer and Mr. Larry Rosen. And my parent bought, it was probably a 88 Toyota Tercel. <laughs> and they all bought like, as you put it in an earlier email or, or text, Eric, a suitcase of Bud Light. They all bought that. I was driving, so like not drinking while I'm driving, but I'll start drinking when I get there. And then we like, because there was such mayhem in the car, there's such shit talking at like eight, nine, 10 in the morning. I completely missed the exit, went all the way almost to Canada. And we're like, wait, we missed that exit to get to the ferry boat to get to San Juan Islands. So he turned around, went back down, which allowed Larry more time to drink some more beer and soon sprain his ankle. And Why Custer, I- in the car? <laughs> he was trying to like step on the the clutch and it just like no I, no I think he just Larry explain how you sprained your ankle. So I'll tell you how that day started for me. Okay, <laughs> I woke up 
with my girlfriend at the time. I don't know if you remember, I had a new girlfriend. I was insanely in love with her and I didn't want to go with you. Just guys. like every girl at that time. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to go with you guys. I didn't want to leave her, but you guys talked me into, someone talked to me and it was probably Chris. So I woke up at the sorority house where she was living. And I told Chris this the other day and he didn't know. So right before I left, she was telling me how she used to live in the sorority house, but she got kicked out. I said, why'd you get kicked out? And she said, oh, I was promiscuous. And then they came about. <laughs> so I had that that I was thinking about. So when they said, let's go buy, you know, a half rack of Bud Lights, I'm like, sure, let's start. It was 8.30 in the morning. I'm like, I want to have a good time. But I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. So we start drinking. And yeah, I can't imagine what it must have been like to drive in that car because it wasn't ideal. Uh, I remember being on the ferry and I'm glad. I can't imagine being a parent on that ferry with a child with us being there. But the way I sprained my ankle was we, I always thought this should be a movie scene. We got across the ferry and we were driving and someone said, I gotta, I gotta pee. And the car lurches to the side of the road and we all, <laughs> literally we fall out, except for Chris. We all fall on the floor, we get up. And I've always had problems peeing in front of people. I'll just say it. And so I'm like, I gotta get away from these guys. So I just start running. <laughs> and I find a spot and the spot's in. So I was the first casualty. I came back and my ankle was sprained and there's really only one way to deal with a sprained ankle in that sense. You just keep drinking. <laughs> I, can't. I thought you were going to say you ice it. Well, I guess you could ice it, but I just can't drink it. That's, so, Eric, that makes more sense. How did you get there? Do you remember? You, nat yes. you natty ice it, I'd say. So. Um, yeah, it's actually, it's funny how things are coming back to me because if oh, yesterday I was like, God, what do I remember, if anything, from that's specific? But then as we're talking, it's like a lot of things are coming back. Um, I remember, and I'm I'm 99% sure that was this trip to the San Juans, but, and I think it was Criley that picked me up in his convertible. I had a job in downtown Seattle. I was a law clerk at a law firm and I had this suit on and because I was, I think in my like last year of law school, so I would have been like, I don't know, 23 years old or something like that. That sounds about, is that the right time frame, timing, probably something like that? 22, 23. Yeah, I was 23. Yeah. I mm -hmm. So they, they had already gone to 7-Eleven uh, and gotten the, the case, the suitcases, which actually had 24 Bud Lights. In, and we, all, we each had one, a suitcase. And they picked, they roll up. It was like a scene out of the Blues Brothers or something. They pull up in front of, <laughs> the tower in downtown Seattle, whatever that the biggest building in downtown Seattle is. Um, I come out, I'm in my suit. They're screaming at me and all these people in suits are around me and they're yelling at me to get in the car. And so I get in the car and we start drinking while we're <laughs> just top down. We're being careful. Um, and, the, and I don't, I mean, we were pretty good about the driver not drinking while we were in motion um <laughs> those stoplights were okay no um, <laughs> no but, but I, I do i mean i was i remember being because I, I was pretty i'm a mm, sort of anxious type and i remember back then being pretty particular about that so 
I, I think we were careful in that regard that whoever was driving wasn't drinking, but the passengers were at that time. And so, um, but it was, I just remember that drive up, just, you, we felt free. And that was the other thing about that time. If there's another word that, you know, flow and freedom, that was a time of my life that, and fun and laughter is just free. And so literally with the top down, sunny day, wind blowing through our hair, drinking a couple of beers, going up I-5. I mean, how much more free can you feel at all, ever? Like once you start have a mortgage and you got kids, it's like, it's just not that way anymore. And so that's what, when I think back and reminisce, it's that feeling, but that was the beginning of that weekend for me. We were on the, we were on the cusp of adulthood. I didn't, see, I, I suspected that you had a serious adult life that was already set in motion at that time, but we only got hints. I didn't know that you were working, that you were clerking that summer. Um, and I'm now I'm imagining you like loosening your tie very demonstrably, <laughs> taking the coat off. Because <laughs> there was always a sense to me that when you got in that car with a band, you were on a magical mystery tour, like fun stuff was gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, or, it was or, always or just, flight. Also, the, the music of, of that era played a big role. Like, mm -hmm. you get in that car and you crank up uh, Blister in the Sun, or, and everybody's screaming it. And just, I just picture Criley screaming it and laughing and smiling and just immediate joy. You're like, I don't know, as, as an adult, like as a 55-year-old, to get it immediately into that place of just extreme joy is... Like, how often do we get to do that? I mean, it does happen, but it's not anywhere near as regular as it was then. Um, we got it through music, a little bit through alcohol, too, through sports. That was another yeah. aspect that really bound that group together, um, too, was we'd go play volleyball, beach volleyball, or basketball together. So there were multiple different things that was the glue that held everyone together, but yeah, I just remember just mm -hmm. like driving up, you got the music cranking, sun shining, air blowing through your hair. It's just, I got chills. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I would, yeah. And once we got up to the island that weekend, and it's interesting, like four or five vehicles probably converged on the space with different groups of people, but the music was definitely going. The, I, I do remember like the Beautiful South was a, a big thing, or like the House Martins, but. What other, what other music do you remember Eric, from that time or, or Larry? Eric, do you remember when Don, Dan's brother's Jeep, broke down at Shilshul and we pushed it all the way back up Shilshul Boulevard and you were steering and we were playing the fine young cannibals. Oh, yeah. And you were dancing in that driver's seat and just cranking <laughs> us. We pushed that stupid car several miles, which if you told me to do that now, I would say, no, that is the most horrible thing I can think of. But it's one of my favorite memories. That's beautiful. I It's specific memories like that, that I, like there's things I can remember. I was just at the bank today and they asked me my dad's bank account number and routing number. I was like, oh yeah, I got those memorized, not a problem. Um, <laughs> But it's like to, to think back, which that's like, I, I, I admire people who can do that. So thank you for that. I don't, I don't remember that specific incident with Don, but um, that's well, awesome. We came across <clears throat> Bart 
and he was wearing a foam Sonics finger on. He was driving the other direction, wearing a foam Sonics finger on his head. <laughs> that seems very Bart-like. Yeah, Bart, whose name, last name, we will, will not mention because we have not gotten permission. But that guy, yeah, he he enjoyed being. I, we talked about he and a couple of other guys, Eric, as being maybe the chorus to your sort of like like leadership and the, the humor quality like yeah. once we got there yeah what chris what happened okay so immediately what happened i mean we had to take a ferry boat across the sound if we dock if we get in on the way to i believe um the property larry i think that's when you twisted your ankle yes it so, is yeah so we get there and our friend sean who declined to be on this podcast for various reasons because he doesn't remember apparently a lot because like within like five minutes, like, oh, of course, we're a bunch of dudes in our 20s and we're sporty, as you said, Eric. And we start seeing who could throw a rock into the sound the farthest. And just like threw like picking up like stones from the property and throwing them. And Sean decides he's going to really go for it right as he gets out of the car. And what he does is slip, throw the rock about 10 feet and like hit his head on the railing of the fence that guards people from falling into the sound from there. Concussion, hospital, done. <laughs> and we never saw him the rest of the weekend. Do you remember that, Eric? Not specifically, but but it's but it's. I mean, there's a flicker. <laughs> you know what? I got to tell you, me too. So I I contacted Sean to see if he wanted to be it, and here's what he said. So not sure I want to relive that one. All I remember is drink, drink, fall down, crack head, go to hospital, go home. That's it. <laughs> uh, but he had a fun time in the Tercel on the way up there. Yeah. But I do also remember you, Eric, tidy whities on the bottom tidy whities on the top but you cut like a hole the tidy whities to make it look sort of like you were a fashion model in a bikini and right. having dave one of those daves like get in there and um take either fake pictures or real pictures i can't remember for sure if he took actual real pictures but you were like doing a whole fashion pose down on the i guess the deck of, of the of the property there so do you remember that you remember that eric yeah I remember putting pine cones in the. Uh, oh God, that's right. I forgot. About in the top. I mean, the, the other word that kind of flows through the like all the years, but but what you just described is like absurd. One of I, I admire and still do absurdity, just like things that are just out of place, and just and so that was to to do that. And I guess that's comedy in general or whatever, but it's like to, to do that there at that time was just, it didn't fit. It was out of place, which made it funny. I distinctly remember that. Yeah. It was outrageous, but it wasn't surprising. If I had done it, it would have been surprising and probably <laughs> it would have been weird. Like, what was he doing? But for you, it worked. Yeah, it was that, that sort of thread of, or, or, genre is a better word that genre of comedy of dressing up or dressing down to nothing uh you know just made people laugh 
And, you know, and, and it was, in my opinion, harmless. There was, it was just, it was stupid. It was absurd, but nobody was harmed in any of it that, that I can remember. And that was an important part, you know, of it too. Nobody was, we didn't make fun of anyone that wasn't in the group. It was, it was never at anybody else's expense, at least that I can remember. It was always at our own expense. Larry's like, maybe not. <laughs> well, we're going to get to the next part. And I'm, I'm glad you're right. You guys, no, you're right. You guys, you never, yeah, you're commie. You're, you were always the butt of your own joke. You know, when I showed up the next year and I had been gone and I came back and you were at a party and you were wearing the biggest Levi's I've ever seen, you were the butt <laughs> of that joke. That wasn't to make fun of anyone. But I think we were guilty. And as, I'm, as we move along on the weekend, Chris and I specifically were guilty that weekend of, I don't know if we were, I don't know if we were making fun of people to amuse ourselves, but we almost got in a fight with some other people because we were just barking at them. That's yeah. what we did because we did that stuff. And we, yeah, I mean, I'm totally guilty of making fun of people and I'm sorry for doing it. Well, I'm not immune either. I'm not saying that. I, and I think in that, guys in that age, where we have all that t testosterone going to, like, it wasn't the theme of how we carried ourselves. It wasn't the, 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 the standard way. Did it happen? Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I don't look back on it. I mean, we rarely, this group never really got in fights. There were a lot of people around us who got in fights, just the older Ballard crew and people, but, um, but yeah, there was always some barking and just kind of, yeah, I it was kind of it was sort of like sport. I feel like because actually I think the idea that we, we were all oh, no, sorry, I, I don't know I don't know why you and I didn't get in fights because we were just talking and just talking at people constantly. And yeah, maybe it's because we had uh, the other Sean with us and he was imposing that nobody screwed with us, but that we were asking for it. I don't know. I, I'm curious as we. we can't go on too long with this conversation about this weekend, but I think it's, for me, it's super interesting to like think about how maybe it's lingered on in our memories and like, or what it's maybe informed. I certainly know that this memory and others from that time um, have just really added to a lot of like the stories I've written, um, fictional stories and with kernels of truth in there, a bit of poetry, a bit of just like sitting around, like we got together just like a couple of weeks ago and like Larry was in town, we got together with our friend, Sean, um, and just talked about this old time. And like, just, it's really carried on in a certain way because it was that time in our lives like has been talked about that was just, I don't know, we were becoming adults and being free and also, just there were no supervising adults at that time either around around us and i just think that that is like a breakthrough sort of weekend moment that has stuck with me among the violence and the and the humor and the shit talk and all that kind of stuff and also the crushing hangovers um so there's that but i don't know so eric for you how is this actually like i don't know how do these stories inform your life now yeah or do they um they they do, and w one of the things that I'm very interested in, and one of the reasons I decided to get out of real estate because I want to I want to make room for 
creating um, space for people to have sort of the, not the exact relationships we had back then, but but there was also there was an intimacy to those friendships that that was and that, that's I guess what I'm taking forward now. There's that that depth of relationship, the the time we spent together when you get into your 30s, 40s, 50s, or whatever. There's just you don't have that group where you have that. I mean, maybe some people do. I don't, I have a lot of friends, I guess you'd say, but, and I'm cultivating those more intimate group relationships. And that's something that, again, interests me that I want to work on and, and try to create in the future. And part of it is informed by that experience back then. I, I miss it. Uh, there are parts of it, some of the things we just mentioned a minute ago that aren't all that healthy. And I'm happy to look back and say, yeah, that was, funny then, not funny now, that was cool to drink that much then, whatever. Um, yeah, there were some fights, not all that funny now, but it also, it did inform me wanting to recreate some of that deeper sort of intimacy of those friendships now. It's really interesting that you use the word intimacy because I had never really thought about it in those terms before, but it really is what it was. I mean, and maybe just because we saw each other every single day. But, um, and it's interesting, you said, you know, when you get older, I think your friendships, the new friendships you make are often based on either working together or they're the, they're the parents of your kids' friends. So you have a specific thing to rally around and looking back on that, what rallied, what, were, what brought us together? We just were there, you know? And maybe that made it more intimate. Maybe it's because of where we were in life, you know, on the cusp of adulthood and not knowing what to do next. But um, I see your point. What are you thinking of moving into then? That's, that sounds intriguing. Well, I just also wanted to say back to what you were saying about living in the moment. I think there's a part of that that I want to bring forward as well, where everything back then, yeah, I, I would use the word intimate. It, it was in the moment. It was free. And that whole feeling is what I want to just include more in my life. And social media, getting off of Facebook, it, it just, our society is going in a direction of divisiveness and, and non-intimacy, whatever the opposite word would be. Um, and so that, I'm actually doing a... Um, a sort of an experiment with a group I'm calling Soul Tribe. And I've invited just at this point, a handful of people into it, seeing if the one-on-one -on -one interactions that I have with people on a regular basis, I do a lot of coaching and mentoring, and I have these wonderful deep conversations with people, you know, two, three hour conversations that are reminiscent of the time we spent together back then. We got to know each other in a relatively short amount of time, really, really well. Um, mm -hmm. And so my question and curiosity is, can those one-on-one -on -one interactions and discussions, can that be brought to a larger group where, and it's, and I'm doing it as a private Facebook group. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that same level of intimacy and safety can be created in a larger group 
on the internet. And as I say it, it's like, well, that doesn't sound very realistic. Um, and it's, and so far it's been quite challenging to be honest. I, um, but that's what I'm looking at. I don't know if this iteration of it is what it's going to be for me, but I know that, that creating, bringing forward those types of more intimate relationships and having a larger group or tribe that, 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 I get to do that with is what I would ideally like to spend the rest of my life doing. That sounds like a lot of fun. That's pretty awesome. That is definitely awesome. I'm glad we brought you on here too, because um, you filled in a lot of blanks for me with that time and that group that I hadn't thought of before. Positive blanks, you know, it's easy to write off that. Like when we started doing this and we did it, we recorded an intro when, we were, when I was in Idaho a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, we can't do that. We just sound like we're bragging about how drunk we were. You know, it just sounds like a <laughs> weekend where guys were drunk. But to have you here and to, to give some context to it, it's nice. It gives a little meaning. Yeah. And to get into like the theme-ish thing we're doing with this uh, season of our podcast, like as far as like Independence Day, I, I do kind of think it actually those times not totally specifically this particular long weekend did create like a sense of like independence or did it create like a sense of you know for me at least it did sort of i was like as we spoke of dang like these are new people new experiences no new new no no holds barred kind of stuff we can do and it just it did definitely like change and stick with me you know sort of like in a, in a certain way that i didn't no was happening until maybe a few years later so i don't know eric or larry like did that particular weekend or that particular time for you eric like change you in the, in the very long run so i think all of the experiences i had with that group changed me but i, I that one in particular i i couldn't say that that one did all there were so many interactions that were similar in that it had these certain qualities and characteristics that uh, that were awesome, were incredible. If you look at any one of them, I mean, there might be other people who only have maybe 10 of those events in their entire life. I mean, people who didn't really party or weren't really into having, I don't know, that much fun or freedom or weirdness and absurdity and all of that. We That was all the time. I mean, it was like... So that's when I think back, there were, there was probably at least five years, if not more, probably from being 17 years old to 25, where that, it was, it was like that all the time is my memory of it. I remember it as a time to just sort of piggyback on what you just said, Eric. Um, I could go out alone and I knew there was always going to be friends waiting for me. You know, I'd, I'd never have to worry about that. Um, and that's the only time I think that happened. I wanted to bring up, and maybe this is, you, you can let me know if this is a good way to wrap it up, but it was either on the first night or the second night, there were, and I can't remember if we were in two cabins, but, and I think I was in the shotgun shack in the stabbing cabin with, there, I, there was at least four or five people in there. And we been out drinking, partying, whatever, came back in, all the lights were off except for one candle <laughs> that was still lit. And it was 
up on like a countertop, but everybody was already tucked in in their sleeping bags. And I think we just crashed on the floor. I think we just saw that sleeping bags yeah. and pillows on the floor. <laughs> and and there had to be, you know, five, six of us in there. And none of us wanted to get up to take care of it uh, or to put the, put the candle out. It was an old school candle, literally a, a, a regular candle. And Cryley says in his gruff voice, he's like, I'll take care of it. And he conjures up this loogie. He's like, you can hear him. <laughs> takes out oh. the candle. we all just go it just the whole place just erupts with like oh. <laughs> and then we went to sleep but oh man that seems about right <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well that's a pretty good way to like blow out the candle on this podcast forever i guess <laughs> we're gonna ruin the whole thing not just for that story but with all of our antics but no it's so good to see you mr eric olson thanks and for coming likewise guys this was a lot of fun i enjoyed yeah it. so larry's writing a novel about that entire weekend so i am we'll look okay. for that soon yes <laughs> my third novel okay eric thanks for joining us Larry and I immensely enjoyed that conversation. And here comes our correspondent counting flags with Kevin Smokler. Fireworks need dark. In southeast Michigan, where I grew up, night fell about 9.15 p.m. in the summertime, which meant on the 4th of July, my parents had a whole day of keeping us kids busy until the main event of the holiday. Neighbor barbecues didn't get going until the afternoon, and it made no sense to light sparklers until at least the kinda dusk of summertime. What then to do with the morning, when Independence Day itself had barely gotten out of bed? That's how my father came up with the game of flag counting, as a distraction to burn daylight. Every 4th of July morning, from childhood to early high school, my father would drive around the neighborhoods of our town while my brothers and I would count American flags. Flags hung off balconies and the short roofs of front porches, flags on poles in front of schools and post offices. A flag counted if it was flown outdoors and shaped like a rectangle. The outdoors rule emerged from arguments over whether that red, white, and blue fabric over there was a flag or bunting or just loud curtains. The rectangles rule meant we didn't have to spend an hour in front of an auto dealership decked out in thousands of plastic triangle flags for its Independence Day sale. We never kept track of how many flags we counted or whether it was more this year than the year before, but we did insist my dad take us to parts of our hometown we'd never seen. The point wasn't numbers, but adventure. As soon as the car started, we'd yell, time to get lost, and before Google Maps or GPS, that actually felt like something you could do. My dad played along and would tell us, we're going to Almondinger Heights or Buckholtz Court, somewhere we'd never heard of. And then we'd all wriggle around in the seatbelt so we could kneel and lean out the open windows as undiscovered countries of the town where we'd always lived whipped by. My father knew exactly where we were, but pretended long enough to keep us curious instead of worried. Coloring in the map of our hometown must have then been at least a side benefit of flag counting, or maybe it helped kill time also in a way that being lost even for a moment feels like forever. In the way summer days are long, but the season feels like it's dying before it's even begun. My father doesn't recall exactly when flag counting started, or why my mother or our friends never came along, or how many hours we would spend playing it on any one 4th of July morning. 
My hometown was a blue corner of a purple state and had been the site of loud protests during the Vietnam War, Operation Desert Storm, and the 2016 presidential election. My parents were patriots in the model of James Baldwin. I love America more than any other country in the world, Baldwin said. Exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. For the first decade of its history, flag counting was a ritual only my family had that we kept long after the game had served the purpose of its creation. We were growing up and could now burn a morning's worth of daylight on our own. At that point, flag counting became what architectural critics have said about the Eiffel Tower, built only to be itself. We stopped flag counting around the same age kids stopped trick-or-treating. No one remembers exactly when. One year, we couldn't wait to get lost and wriggle in the seatbelt and shout, Flag! Over there! While our knees pooled in sweat. And the next year, flag counting was something we used to do. It's 1999. I'm 25, in graduate school, and hating it. I have few friends, I regret my path of study, and I live in Austin, Texas, an exciting time to be in that city that will lead America into the 21st century, and yet I know almost nothing of it. That summer, my one friend asked me what my favorite holiday was, and before I have a fully formed answer, I tell her. And when she asks why, I tell her about flag counting. We go flag counting that Independence Day as an excuse for her, a native, to show me parts of Austin I don't know, which is most of it. And I realized pretty quickly that I didn't just miss this weird family tradition from long ago. I actually needed it now, right now. My world felt unfamiliar and small, as it did in childhood, but without any of the benefits of protection or comradeship. Two years into having few friends and training for a career I didn't want, I was forgetting how I got there, even who I was. And here's the dumbest part. I was in an American studies program. What America was, meant, what we had invented and stolen, built and burned, fascinated me. It still does. And somehow the first draft of that fascination came right from how my family, patriotic in the Abby Hoffman wearing an American flag button-down sense of the word, celebrated America's birthday. I brought flag counting to San Francisco when I moved there a year later. Flags were as plentiful as hot dogs in 2002, 10 months after the September 11th terrorist attacks. Election years seemed to mean more flags unfurled. Off years, not so many. I started taking friends flag counting, and with what little explaining I could do, laid out how this silly game had been born of my family and was therefore inseparable from how I celebrated the 4th of July. Outside in the sunshine, getting damp in the heat and then cooled by the wind, patronizing lemonade stands, and noticing how streets with names like Colony Avenue and Liberty Hill Terrace always seemed flag-dense. Venturing further than you had before, seeing your hometown as knowable, a place that had once chosen you, and now you chose it. My wife joined in 2007, the year we met. It was her idea to end flag counting with a call to my father to report that year's totals. Afterwards, we'd get ice cream and kneel in the grass for a picnic. It was also my wife's idea that, beginning in 2015, a month after the nationwide legalization of gay marriage, that we count rainbow and pride flags too, and that after the 2016 election, we include signs of resistance in the count. In 2020, exactly one federal holiday after the murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter signs counted as well. We now read famous American speeches and poems before we set out to count flags. We ring a corny little Liberty Bell I ordered from the Liberty Bell Museum, and I put together a new playlist for the car ride each year, with American music to reflect the mood of this difficult time of needed change. 
often joyous, frequently angry. The Declaration of Independence was completed on July 2nd, 1776, and ratified by the states that August. July 4th commemorates when the Declaration was printed and distributed in Philadelphia. The date that, for everybody not in the suffocating heat of Independence Hall, the words of the Declaration, and therefore America itself, became real. Historian Jill Lepore wrote that in order for declarations of independence to work, a nation to be needs a literate public to read its blueprints and a printing press in order to circulate its plans. A new country first needs its own founding ideas to get out into the sunlight and move around. We haven't really been able to get out into the sunlight and move around without fear for over a year now. Because now we can, my wife's best friend is visiting us this 4th of July specifically to join in flag counting. There will be ice cream and music and mini Liberty Bells and calling my father at the end of it all. But I didn't bring this silly game he invented into adulthood in order to freeze myself in childhood, even for a day. Most of what happens on our July 4th morning originates in the near present rather than the distant past. I am the only one of my brothers that still counts flags. My dad's game has become the main event of my favorite day of the year. People, like countries, are meant to grow up and change for the better. That's the project of raising children, of amending founding documents, of learning. We come into the early morning. We get lost and found again. There's plenty to do. We actually don't need to distract ourselves just to kill daylight until dark. Okay, there you have it. That's our episode, Story Forward, Independence Day. Hopefully yours went well. I can't say for sure yet that uh, mine or Larry's has gone well yet because we just recorded this, uh, you know, before the actual Independence Day. So hopefully we made it through to the other side, just like Larry and I and Mr. Eric Olson did back in the day we talked about that weekend. But hey, thanks to Kevin Smokler, amazing flag counting story. And thanks to Larry Rosen and Eric and to all our team at Story Forward and to Brett Battistain and the Eavesdrop crew. You can find out more about what they do at ease-drop.com. You can find us on the Facebook uh, at that discussion page. And if you're wondering where Larry is, Larry has fled the building. We're not sure where he is, so it's just me closing you out. Just want to say we hope you're safe and well and... As always, keep the story moving forward.